you. You should have an information guide. It looks like this. If not, you can pick that up after the service on the way out, right on the left on the wall. Uh, you should also have a sermon note guide. Sometimes our copier messes up, and if you only have one side, you're going to be lost about halfway through. So there's some notes back on the table. As well as you see, the table is set for us to remember the Lord's Supper today. We also have a gluten-free uh, bread if you need it. It's back there on the table as well. Uh, you're gonna, you can get up and get that now or anytime if you would like, so you're, um, you don't bother me at all. Turn with me to Genesis 15 as we get back into our series in Genesis. I uh, we'll feel like we didn't really take a break because last week we looked at Hebrews 6 and all about Abraham and, and what anchors our hope. So this week we're picking back up in Genesis 15. We're going to look at Genesis 15 to 17. And just so keep in your mind between Genesis 12 where we started, Abraham started in the Ur of Chaldeans, and Genesis 15 has been about 11 years ago by. We're going to dive into the text in Genesis 15 verses 1 to 6. That's just going to be our starting point. So stand with us as, as we read that, and then we'll move forward from there. Genesis 15 verses 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of your household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Lord, as we come before you this morning, before your word, we were reminded last week that our hope and security rests in the fact that you are unchangeable. Lord, you didn't wake up feeling gloomy this morning because it's raining. You didn't want to turn over and hit the snooze button in our life this morning. You are sovereign and you are unchangeably good. You have given us your word and your oath and you have put us under a covenant. And so, Lord, help us, we pray. Because these things we desire to look at this morning are foundational. They're foundational for our Christian faith. And Lord, it may be this morning you need to correct us. So allow your word to do your work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know what news feeds you follow. I've got my phone set to where it pops up notifications from different places. I have one that's based over in uh, in Britain because it seems to be they give us a better picture of some of the news that goes on in the rest of the world. Um, one thing I notice in this feed is it constantly pops up about how our brothers and sisters are being killed all over the world. Uh, last week, and though we gathered together and, and I had a good time together, for many, it's a very dangerous time of the year. Where, where many will blow up churches and, and kill Christians simply because they know what Easter stands for. I just run across this article of some Christians in Egypt 
who fell victim of it to a bomber this week, and they had one of the wives on a news program and were interviewing him. Apparently, the interviewer was a really popular news broadcaster in, in Egypt. Just asking her her response, how does she deal with such a loss of losing her husband and so many others that died? Here's what she said. I am not angry at the one who did this, set his wife, children by her side. I'm telling him, may God forgive you and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. She goes on to say, you put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. To this answer by this grief-stricken wife of forgiveness, the news broadcaster didn't know what to say. I don't know if you ever heard any of this awkward silence on, on TV. It's really, the guy sit there for 13 seconds on air and didn't know what to say. Just mouth open and just trying to figure out. He finally started stammering around and he finally proclaimed, How great is this forgiveness you have? His voice cracked. If it were my father, I could never say this, but this is their faith and religious conviction, speaking of the Christians in Egypt. And so I ask you this morning, is this supernatural forgiveness that we read about in this story, is it an anomaly in the life of a Christian? Is this only true of some people? What exactly does God's covenant promise us it will produce. Does it work on some Christians and not other Christians? This is important stuff. This is foundational to the Christian life. Last week we were in Hebrews 6, and Hebrews 6 verse 13 reminded us, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, surely saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so last week we talked about the fact that our hope and the anchor of our soul is that God's word is secured by his own character. God gives his oath and he cannot change it. God's purpose can't be altered. We can't turn the dials on what God has planned. They are set and they are sure because his own character guarantees it. And so this week as we get to chapter 15, God takes it a step further with his promises to Abraham by entering into a blood covenant, a covenant secured with blood. But make no mistake this morning, this is fundamentally first. It is God who establishes his covenant with Abraham. It is God who initiates it. So look with me. Genesis 15, verse 1, we see first God's self-revelation. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And so as, as we gathered here this morning, what did we do? We proclaimed who God is. That's what we did. We gathered together. We proclaim it. Here's what he tells. Listen, this, this self-revelation is intensely personal. He says, I am your shield. I am your reward. So... What is a shield? A shield is a defensive weapon. He's saying, I'm your protector. In other words, he says, fear not. Generally, people say fear not because we what? We're fearing. He says, fear not. I, I'm your protector, Abram. And I'm your reward. Now, if, if you were Abram and you heard, I am your reward, what's going on in your head? Remember, and we've already read it and we'll see it. He's, 
He's concerned that there are a couple of old people and they don't have a seed. They don't have an heir. Probably like Psalms 127.3 says, children are a blessing, a fruit, a reward from God. But not only that, you see, these, the first part of chapter 15 has two dialogues that go on between God and Abraham. And before, between each dialogue, we have self-revelation. So let's look at the, second, the beginning of the second dialogue. I just want you to see this other self-revelation. It's in verse 7. It says in verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And so you've got to think like the original audience reading the text. This sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments when the Ten Commandments were given. In Exodus 22, before he gives the commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So this would look here sound very familiar that God is a God who delivers. He's, I am your deliverer. Remember, Abram, you were a pagan in the Earl of the Chaldeans and I brought you here. I revealed myself to you. And so he, told, he was reminding those, the original readers, I am the one who delivered you out of the house of slavery. And then we have this amazing Genesis 15, 6 verse. This summary declaration. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. So turn with me to Romans 4 verse 1. It's very important this morning that we get the order right here. And that we don't stop. Romans 4 verse 1. Paul gives us understanding to this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And listen, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. And so God wants to make it perfectly clear, and Paul's making it clear in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, that righteousness is, a, is not a reward that comes from some kind of work. It's not from the work of Abraham. God reckons it. God credits it. God counts it to him. It is a gift. It is a gift given by God, this righteousness. God reveals himself. He gives him promises. Abraham believes. God gives to him as a gift, reckons him righteous before him. Therefore, he is called the father of all who believe, becoming the model for us. Now look with me at verse 11 and 12. Paul brings circumcision into this. We're going to get into that in just a minute. This is important, foundational things here. Verse 11 said, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Their purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of that our father Abraham 
had before he was circumcised. In other words, before any of the sign of circumcision that we're going to talk about in just a minute came this, God revealed himself to him. He promised him things. Abraham believed. He trusted him. And God gave it to him as a gift. You are righteous. This is where we begin. And yet we see this in this conversation. God and Abraham have a conversation. They have two of them. I want to focus in on verse 8. Look with verse 8 with me. Abraham speaking to God. But he said, O Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So what is, what is he saying? This is, this is just reality here in Abraham's life. We're sitting there going, did he believe? Yes. But did he believe as strong as he should have believed? No. We don't see a perfect obedience. We don't see a perfect faith. We see a progressive one. So God and Abraham have a conversation. Abraham says, how am I going to know the multiplication is going to happen? How am I going to know the offspring is coming? And so this leads to an irrevocable, unconditional covenant. The ratification of God's covenant. What does ratify mean? Ratify means the act of signing something, signing into law, to give formal consent to a treaty, a contract, or in here, a covenant. It makes it officially valid. In other words, this was simply when God... God comes and Abraham Abraham's God has this question, or how will I know? He comes to him in the culture that he lives in. This was simply a normal part of their culture. Covenants were normal. The way this happens, the way it's laid out, you've got to understand, God's not inventing something. He's not starting something. He's using what they understood. He asks for that, how will I know? And he says, okay, do what I say. There's going to be a blood sacrifice. So we see in verses 9 to 11, God says to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought to him these, cut them in half, and laid each half against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And In other words, if this is the thing, if just imagine the way he got them to set up. We put the, sever the animals in half. We put the animals here, the animals here. They're across from each other. Severed in, severed in half in a row, and there's a space between them. This was the normal way that they would ratify a covenant. And there, there are two types of covenants. A covenant of equal parties and a covenant of unequal parties. Culturally, this is the way it was done. And so somebody tell me, which type of covenant, if God's establishing a covenant with Abraham and his people, is it an equal party covenant or unequal? Unequal. This is important. This is foundational. We, we get all messed up because we don't read Scripture in a particular context. This is an unequal parties covenant. And that means, that means something. It means that, that there is a superior and an inferior. There is a sovereign and there is a vassal. And the sovereign initiates the covenant. The vassal cannot. He cannot initiate the covenant. He is inferior. It takes the sovereign to initiate the covenant, and so it was with God. He initiated this ceremony. The purpose of this covenant, of, of setting it up this way, culturally, was to invoke a curse. It was to say, when you walked through here, may this happen to me if I don't keep my covenant. 
May, may my blood be shed. May I be cut in two if, if I do not keep my covenant. And the parties would walk through there, thus ratifying the covenant. And here's what we see. It's set up. What happens to Abram? God puts him in a deep sleep. It says, after Abraham fell in a deep sleep, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And so what we have now is something that's really important to understand to the original audience that would, that would be reading this. God gives Abram a prediction, a prediction of 400 years of suffering and slavery, a thing that the original audience would know full well come to be. So why bring, why bring that up in the midst of this covenant? He's given them a, in the midst of this solemn oath, this solemn covenant that God establishes, he guarantees his people that his promise will be fulfilled despite suffering, despite death, that none of that will keep God's promises from being fulfilled. He binds himself by covenant, and he says the reality is there's going to be suffering, there's going to be death, but this covenant will be fulfilled. And so what we have next, look at verse 17, is a theophany, a visible manifestation of God in fire. Now again, when we look at verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now again, this would mean a lot to the original audience who, would, who, who understood that God led them through the wilderness with a, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So we get this picture in the midst of complete darkness. The zeal of God accomplishing His purpose, His holiness displayed in His absolute power. So, this shows us something, doesn't it? This, con this covenant is by very nature unconditional. For you see, it was God who walked through. It was God who ratified it. Abram did not. He did not go through. So the Lord walked through. The Lord alone bound himself to all the obligations of the covenant. It's important. Yet, we get this like, wow, it's one of, those, one of those, remember we talked about these big moments God does in your life, these foundational moments We set up the stone, you know. Now we got chapter 16. We got to look at chapter 16. I'm not going to focus there, but I want you to see it. It's just reality. There again. Abram didn't have a perfect faith. He had a progressive faith. And when he'd done something stupid, he usually went all out. <laughs> we saw that in 12 to 14. He ended up with his own wife in the, the harem of, of Pharaoh because of, because of his own fear. Now we, now we see this display of man's impatience and yet God's compassion. So this is the reality. Abram... Abram and Sarah, though they understand what God has said, yet have one thing on their mind. In chapter 16, verse 1 says, Sarah's barren. It's what we know. I'm old. <laughs> We're old. And Sarah has no children. So what happened? You've got to understand what Sarah's doing here. She's not, being, uh, she's not a cultural groundbreaker here. She says that this was the cultural norm of the day. She was simply thinking pragmatically. 
this is the only way. It's okay, Abram, I'm going to bring Hagar. She's my, she's my, she's my handmaiden, and, and I'm going to give her to you, and we're going to have a child, and this is going to work. So what do we see in verse 2? Sounds, sounds like we're in the garden again, doesn't it? Abram just goes along with it. He just complies. So what do we get? We get Hagar getting pregnant. And we get pride coming into the picture where Hagar begins to look at Sarah differently. <laughs> Sarah don't play. She makes life so hard on Hagar that Hagar flees. And this is when we get God's compassion in verses 7 through 12. Hagar flees, but she cries out to the Lord. Here's what's amazing. You've got to see this. Remember who Hagar is now. The Lord hears her. He sends a messenger. The word angel means messenger. And this is not our focus today to, to spend a lot of time on this. But he comforts her, he instructs her, and he gives her promises. So the Arabs today claim their descent off of Hagar's son, who God names him here, Ishmael. God hears. That's where they claim descent. It's where they come from. And here's this picture. In the midst of our father of faith, Miss of Sarah, we get this, we get Hagar. She, in chapter 16, becomes the model of faith. She cries out to God. God answers her. He promises her. He instructs her. He says, you go back and you stay under her leadership, and she goes back. In other words, Hagar obeys. But you got to get the main point here. Nothing, nothing in chapter 16 changed God's purpose. And, and their sin that they're absolutely responsible for did not change God's timetable a half a second. It happened, it, his, his timetable was perfect. They didn't slow it down and they didn't speed it up. And so we see in chapter 16 and verse 6, look, Abraham's 86 at the end of chapter 16. Chapter 17 opens up and Abraham, Abram's 99, 13 years. <laughs> God speaks, and the Lord gives covenant responsibilities to Abram. So what do we see? Verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. That's a good morning. You like to have God wake you up that way. What is he saying? El Shaddai, that's, that's what that means. I am God Almighty. He's, he's introducing himself as the omnipotent God. I am the all-sovereign God. At this point, covenant is the main point. It's used 13 times in this chapter by itself. And so a sign of the covenant was, again, a normal part of that context to understand, to remind people of the covenant. He reminded them of the promises of this covenant. What is that covenant? What were the promises? What are the privileges of this covenant? What are the responsibilities of this covenant? And so the men of this nation would carry around on their actual flesh a constant reminder of who God is, what God's promise, and what were their responsibilities. So what we have here and this is where we have dropped the ball, and don't drop the ball this morning. We have Abraham's basic covenantal responsibilities. Covenant 
comes with responsibilities. We are saved by faith alone outside of any works. It is not payment. It is a gift. This is who He is. This is what He's promised. I believe. God enters, God initiates with us a covenant. And when He does, He promises that that covenant will come to fulfillment by His own, and He puts His own name on the line. God's going to produce it. And now we see He begins to speak to Abram. Look at verse 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You see, a living faith always faithfully lives. A living faith leads to faithfulness. This was true then, and it is true now. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Listen to this quote. Live in such a way that every single step is made with reference to God. And every day experiences Him close at hand. And like Noah, Abraham is to be blameless. The Hebrew word blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means whole. It signifies complete, unqualified surrender. Abram is to be wholly devoted to the Lord God, end quote. So how does Abram respond to this? Look at verse 3. He fell on his face. That's how he responded. Looks like chapter 12. Remember chapter 12, God reveals himself, and we see this constant pattern of because Abraham believed, Abram obeyed. Because Abraham, Abraham believed, he, he worshipped. So we see this response to God. First covenant responsibility. The one that overarches everything else. Walk before me and be blameless. So what else do we see in this covenant? We see that covenant changes his identity, their identity and status. Look at verse 4. And this, I've been waiting on this for two or three weeks. I don't have to say Abram and Sarai anymore because God changes their name here because we all want to call them Abraham and Sarah. So from now on, I don't have to keep correcting myself in my head. It's, he changes her name. Praise Jesus. But in this culture, there again, context is everything. This meant something. The original audience will understand when, when God, somebody names you, they're exercising authority. Your identity was tied up in your name. Your status within the family and even within a community is tied up in your name. And here is in verse 4. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but now your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of the multitude of nations. So this is a word play. Abram means father exalted. Now he's going to say Abraham. That means father of a multitude. But he's not done. He's also going to change Sarah's name too. So skip down with me to verse 15 and 16. I want you, I want you to see both these name changes together. And God said to Abraham, As for your as for Sarah, your Sarah, your wife, you shall not she shall not be called her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peace peoples shall come from her. So Sarah means queen, or a mother to kings. 
So imagine, I don't know how this happened. I don't know whether they was in a tent when all this happened, but imagine you go out and Abraham's 100 years old and Sarah's a little bit behind her. They're not as spry as what they used to be. <laughs> they come out a couple of old people with no kids. And they say, okay, now from now on, you're going to call me a father of a multitude and you're going to call her queen. People would be like, I don't know if somebody, you've looked in the mirror, but you're old and you got no kids. You see, God had entered into a covenant with them and he had changed their name, he had changed their position. John 1, 12, John 1, 12 and 13 helps us to take a second just to reflect on our name change, our identity change. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, listen, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you're born again today, then God says, I've changed your name. You're my child. That's who you are. And you are a child of God, not because of you, but because of me. This is what he's done. But make no mistake. Covenant requires circumcision. This was the covenant responsibility. You'd say, why? Why? Listen, God's covenant requires obedience. This is not optional. If you believe it is, look at verse 14. It says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is a covenant. God's covenant requires obedience. Yes, it is a gift of God's righteousness. is a gift, not based off of works. But when God enters in a covenant with you, it's going to produce something, and what it must produce is obedience. Why this way? I'm not going to explain circumcision. I think we all understand it. If you don't, I'll talk to you about it, or if you're a child, ask your parents. We all understand it, I hope. This is important, though. Listen, this is a sexual sign. This sign joined faith with the act of sexual reproduction. Remember, the promise is for seed, for offspring. These covenanters would be constantly reminded in their flesh that human nature alone does not guarantee the promised seed. God does. God does. In other words, circumcision was meant to reflect and to remind them of their dependency on God. They need only to think about Abraham and Sarah and how impossible it was for what happened to happen, though it happened to say God had to do something. It reflects their dependency. It also reflects purity. Impurity must be laid aside, especially in marriage important this morning. Just what he's focused on. He drills in. This, this some things must be cut off. You are my people. This was a constant reminder to preserve the purity of marriage to produce a godly seed. Right? It's in your notes. Malachi 2, 10 to 17. We're not going to read that. But this is undergirding how important it is to for the faithfulness in marriage and how this was inseparably connected to this requirement. 
So this sign is going to always remind them in their own flesh the God of who they were because of who God is, of who they, who they were because of what God's promised. And it's a constant reminder that they must walk blameless before their God. And there again, here comes Abram. Abraham. Now I can say Abraham. Look at verse 17. You wouldn't believe how much is written. Explaining verse 17. Trying to explain it. It says, And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. It's like, what's up with that? You know, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. What, what's going on there? Here's what we know. Abraham might laugh, but God names. God doesn't even respond to it. He simply responds in how he names Isaac. He says, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. Now, yeah, take that. <laughs> think it's funny? So we'll need to understand this does represent doubt. It does. It doesn't represent mocking. How do you know? Because look at verse 22. God leaves, and Abraham obeys. God leaves, and he gets up, goes to Ishmael, and circumcises. Then he gets himself, he, he circumcises himself and all the other guys in the family. That was a wailing and gnashing of teeth day that day. But he obeys. But listen to me, this is important. Covenant requires spiritual circumcision. This is what this is all pointing to. Imagine the futility of physical circumcision without walking blameless before your God. This is hence all the pain and the suffering and the judgment that God's people would go through when they think they can keep going to church on Sunday and live like hell the rest of the week. And God says, I don't want that. I want you to walk blameless before me. This is what it all points to. So this was always the point. Both Testaments testify that circumcision is, is at the heart, is the point. And here is where we have to come back to the center. So to take the physical sign and miss the spiritual is to miss the covenant altogether. To think, I can say because I live in the South and my grandmother was a really godly lady that I'm a Christian and that now because I'm a Christian I claim all the promises that come with Christianity but I have not cut the world off of me you are deceived that is simply not what God promised he was going to do God says I went through the covenant I bind myself to fulfill all the obligations of the covenant. Now walk blameless before me. Will God not produce what he's promised? He does. He will. I hope you're in a growth group. Because right now I would want to go to Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And I'm not going to because y'all studied that in growth group. Or you will tonight or this week. Because in both of those, it starts talking about what God's going to do. God's going to. Take out a heart of stone, and God's going to give you a heart of flesh. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 16. 
Hebrews 10, 16 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless needs no more. Who's going to make sure? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 36. I skipped over that one. I can't. It's too good. Deuteronomy 36. It's the Old Testament. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul that you might live. Who's doing? Who's circumcising the heart? God is. God is. God promised he was going to, and he will do it. He will surely do what he's promised. So, so hear the tension this morning. God's covenant always produces, and God's covenant always requires a righteous people. It produces it, and it requires it. And here we have in this beautiful passage God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Abraham was absolutely responsible to keep the covenant, and so was his people. But God's saying, don't you forget who ratified that covenant. I'll walk through. You didn't. I'm going to make sure that my purpose, my people, will be holy. So have you experienced that? Have you experienced the new covenant? That heart of stone, that desire that was, is taken out of the very core of who you are. God puts inside of you a new heart. A heart that does not walk perfectly, but desires it more than anything. Desire, desire, what beats for heaven. Lord, I desire at a time where I won't sin against my God anymore. Has this happened in your life? And so I call you this morning to remember the new covenant. We didn't plan this this morning. We planned the Lord's Supper months ago. God planned it. So I call you to remember For us as believers, we have two covenants, two signs of the covenant that we remember, two signs. The first is baptism. And baptism points, as 2 Corinthians tells us, that that when God saves us, the old is gone and the new is come and that all of it comes from God. And so walking down the aisle, whether it's at a church or a crusade, is not your public profession of faith, baptism is. We are saved by faith, and God calls us to stand before God and before man and say, I'm with Him, no matter what it costs me. Have you followed the Lord in baptism? He has told us as believers to obey Him. Obedience. This is a sign. What else is a sign? The tables. The Lord's Supper is a sign. Listen to Matthew 26, verse 26. This is explicit. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the new covenant is the promised 